Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of March, 2021, and this is episode number 200. To mark the double centenary of the podcast, I'm joined by historian Rob Thompson. Rob is an expert on logistics and supply during the Great War. He talks to me today about the British planning and supply for the Messines and Third Epes campaign in 1917. He spoke to me over the interweb from his home in England. Rob, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Oh, how did I become interested in the Great War? Um, I went to university as a mature student. I had no interest in Great War or any wars or any type. But uh, I did a politics and history degree, and I was really interested in the politics side. My interest was actually um, Italian politics uh, um, uh, post-World War II, 1947 onwards. And anyway, um, I wanted to do the history element because I thought it would give me a solid background. Um, Various modules that I'd picked did not run in the second year, and so I got my fifth choice module, which was uh, 20th century military history. Um, My initial reaction is, oh God, not the boys with the toys it's awful please dear god help me i went to the, the first seminar with uh, professor martin alexander brilliant bloke but he, he was every inch what you'd expect a military historian to be and anyway he asked uh, uh, for a volunteer to do the first presentation on the first world war the following week and uh, since i was a mature student i saw a lot of 19 20 20 year olds staring at their shoes and i thought well you get cut the most slack if you do this um you know first so yeah i'll do it yeah and i thought it was gonna be pretty straightforward lions donkeys all that kind of thing and i started reading john bourne's book professor john bourne's book um britain in the great war and it started to challenge just about everything and after that i just got suckered in so We're going to talk about logistics today. Can you tell us what logistics mean? Oh, what does logistics mean? Um, It's probably easier to start with the the, the British Army's definition of logistics um, back in 1914, which is they didn't have one. They simply called logistics transportation. Later on, that was increased to supply and transportation. Um, It was the Americans who actually began to use the term logistics from the Greek logos or logical. um, logistics is everything. I, I've described it as everything bar the shouting. I was looking at some definitions, um, one of which was all means uh, required to supply and maintain an army in the field. And I thought, well, that covers huge amounts, as it were. Um, so the best definition when we look at the complexity of a logistical supply system, when we take into account things like um, you know, warehousing, port, shipping, um, you know, what type of crane you've got, um, how good your roads are, what's your capacity of your railway, we begin to realise that it is, um, it, it's something much, much bigger than merely supply and transportation. It is everything required to, to uh, move and maintain an army in 
the field, or if you like, everything bar the shouting. Now, it is said that amateurs study tactics while professionals study logistics. Is there any truth to this saying? And why has there been so little academic and scholarly attention given to logistics, especially in the study of the Great War? Swift answer to that is yes, professionals do talk logistics, amateurs do talk tactics. Um, you know, military history is littered with commanders who have no idea of what they're asking for them from the men. The 20th century, which is the era, if you like, of the, of, you know, the mass warfare and te technology warfare itself, um, we see things like you know, Hitler sweeping his hand across a, a map when we're looking at attacking in Russia. You know, and he's taking absolutely zero account of anything that's going on there. Like, you know, how do you move this? Where are the rail lines? You know, what's the conditions in uh, um, this part of the uh, year or that part of the year? We see it again with the, the Americans, you know, they, 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 they fail dramatically to, you know, uh, understand logistics until they learn the lesson that logistics is everything. Without fuel, without food, without armaments, without shells, without bullets, you don't have a war at any level. Now, you may dream of, of busting through to the Dardanelles, or you may dream of driving up through Italy or defeating uh, uh, um, Montgomery in North Africa, but unless you've got the fuel, the trucks and the, the horses to do that, you're on a hiding to nothing. Um, you can look at, for example, um, German Spring Offensive. It's clear why this fails, why it can't punch through in any of its form, because simply they did took no notice of logistics whatsoever. It's interesting to note that after the, on the 22nd of March 1918, uh, rather than the 21st of March, the average uh, German infantryman was down to seven bullets for his weapon. So why has there been so little academic study of this, especially during the you know the First World War? Frankly, because it's boring. You know, it's it, it's very technical. Um, you know, when I when I look at a, a, a war diary from say um, a division, I look at a brigade or a battalion of infantry. Yeah, it's full of daring do. It's full of, uh, of you know loud explosions going on, etc. If you look at the corresponding diary of the uh, divisional um, uh, assistant adjutant and quartermaster general, it's talking about the fact that this particular part for a gun isn't particularly good, or it's talking about schedules of delivery. You know, it's just simply dull. I mean, you know, we all, you know, does anybody think about how electricity arrives at their house, you know, when they flip the switch on? No, they just flip the switch. They want to watch the TV. They don't want to talk about or understand what goes on behind to produce those images. So simply because it's boring, it's dull, it's unexciting. But but as hopefully we're going to discover, absolutely vital. So we're going to talk about the BEF's planning and logistics during the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. Were yeah. the BEF any good at this um, up to, you know, sort of, the beginning of the battle, or say before the battle, had they actually done well in this, you know, between 1914 and 1917? Uh, in 1914, it was a bit of a shambles, but we only had a very small army. We were mobile and we were de designed to be a mobile army. 1915 sees what, uh, a period of what Ian M. Brown described as ad hocism, which is just, you know, solutions dreamt up on the hoof to deal with that problem there and then. This kind of approach came to a head uh, during the Battle of the Somme in 1916 
2015, I always find it quite ironic that had we managed to break through those German lines, we still couldn't have done anything because we simply lacked the logistic capacity uh, to be able to drive through and maintain any kind of assault. Um, so in late 1916, uh, Sir Eric Geddes, um, who was the uh, head of uh, North Eastern Railway, he was drafted in as an expert because in effect what you've got is a civil system. You have a static front, you have uh, therefore fixed lines and what you need therefore is a, a, a civilian who can understand and operate that and integrate. He came in, he integrated everything, uh, you know, from uh, uh, up to what's known as the army line. So he did all the canals, he did uh, light railways, he did main railways, uh, he did ports, so on and so forth. So we have an integrated system. His writ ends, though, at the line of the army, or if you like, the forward zone or the fighting zone. There, it's traditional systems that take over. But, don't confuse tradition with uh, stultifying or failure to keep up with technology. When the British Army, when the BF went to war in 1914, it did so with the most advanced supply chain in the world because it had specifically interpolated into it motor transport, which gave it a, a, a flexibility of an extra 30 miles in any given direction. So we were very good logistically. It took time to get things right. However, it's not just logistics at matter. It's their relationship with engineers and also with battle that matters. And indeed, we can see the British, the BF logistics uh, uh, system beginning to collapse, uh, uh, certainly during, um, uh, uh, from 31st of July onwards. And even before that, there have been major problems because of failure really to focus on the concomitant of uh, uh, logistics, which is engineering. No road, no movement. No rail, no movement. It's that, that simple, really. So we're going to look at how the BE planned for the battles of Messines and Third Ypres during the summer of 1917. Before we get on to it, can you tell us what the strategic intent for this operation was and what it aimed to achieve? Right, well the strategic intent was logistical at the end of the day. The purpose of it, it was to be uh, um, three separate campaigns in effect all of which made up the Flanders campaign. Um, the first part of which was to secure the southern end of the uh, Passchendaele Staden, uh, sorry, Staden Passchendaele Messines Ridge, that would be the Battle of Messines. The idea was to secure that ridge, it was to prevent uh, observation uh, uh, the Germans had over the main thrust of the battle, which will come from the further north, from, from uh, uh, Ypres itself. The second part of it was the main attack from Ypres. So Messines was a local operation just designed to go as far as it did and do no more than that, to deny German observation and to put their guns on the Gilevelt Plateau under uh, uh, the eyes of the British. The main assault was, was supposed to come out of Ypres. Its task was to get beyond the risk, that uh, the uh, ridge, sorry, um, that was tactical in, 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 in its essence, but the strategic element of it was to drive over the ridge, cut the railway line at a place called Roulier, which is only a, a, a few miles beyond the, on, on the reverse slope of the ridge. You can see it if you go behind Passchendaele itself, and it's, it's a really easy run down. There are no complex ridge systems or anything like that. And if you cut that, you've now just cut one third of Germany's capacity to supply northeast Belgium. The second part of that was to drive through beyond that to cut the rail line at Tourot. Once you've done that, 
the Germans cannot supply uh, Northwest Belgium. It's forcing Northwest Belgium. Um, then there was to be uh, an assault up the coast in combination with some amphibious landings, which is to drive the Germans out, basically to hurry them along, as it were, you know, um, that, that they simply could not maintain their forces anymore. And this was to just push them along a little bit. This would have freed up the Belgian coast, freed up Zeebrugge, all the rest of it. And most importantly of all, it would have formed a flank. So it had... You know, grand strategic uh, objectives, as it were. And it was a very, very sound idea. Conversely, as well, it's about protecting uh, uh, strategic elements for Britain. In 1914, when uh, Falkenheim drove so hard to Ypres, the reason for that is once you move west of Ypres, there's no defensive line. Now, I mean, you can dig some trenches if you want, but there's no real defensive line. The Germans get beyond uh, with Ypres, they've got the Channel Coast. If they've got the Channel Coast, they've just destroyed 200 years of British foreign policy, which is designed specifically to make sure no European uh, uh, power can uh, dominate the English Channel. That is our strategic flank. Without control of the English Channel, Britain can be strangled. It begins to start losing its empire. It's wide open to attack. So it's important either way. So it's basically one of the few places on the Western Front where the war can be won or lost. Tell us about the logistical planning for this campaign that the British aim to start in the summer of 1917. Well, the logistical planning, it depends on which part of the operation we're looking at. To begin with Messines, um, Messines had been um, subject to a good deal of controversy um, because of, uh, really, it's, it's about uh, General Plumer. And I know that uh, General Plumer is everybody's favourite general. And we know that, you know, Messines was a superstar event. However, the reality is somewhat different. The planning for an attack at Messines uh, in the Ypres area actually began in 1914. You know, even as, as you know, before the front had settled down, there were plans about there some form of counterattack in this area. In 1915, the decision was made that once we got up to strength, and this would definitely be our area of attack. 1916 comes along, we've got the Somme. And indeed, the Somme is a major problem. Haig never wanted to attack there, but he was required to be junction of the British and the French army. His focus had always been on the scenes. In 1917, we begin to see after the failure of the Nivelle offensive, um, you know, Haig can pretty much do as he pleases. You know, uh, uh, Lloyd George is in the doghouse. Um, so he continues that. So effectively, the planning and also the infrastructure for the uh, logistical support of machines have been going on in practice since the beginning of 1916. You know, if you look at the mines at machines, you know, they would be gone in 15, late 15, and then gone through in 1916, and then added to in 1917. So, uh, railway lacks had, uh, tracks have been laid throughout 1916, 1917. There was a huge increase in the amount of roads. Roads have been built, so on and so forth. Warehousing further back have been put have been placed. Uh, we had uh, uh, um, innumerable railheads that have been built, and we even had a light railway system. So the planning, logistical planning for machines was absolutely first class, though it was to some degree accidental, as it were. Um, <clears throat> the problem begins at machines with, if you like, the capacity of Britain to produce so much. I mean, there's one statistic that really stands out for me, and that is the bulk allotment of a shells for machines. And I remember machines is a minor sub-operation. That's its task. And the bulk allotment of shells, explosive shells and machines, was 144,000 tonnes. I'm not saying that all of that was fired, but if we look at that collection,
colossal scale and we start adding on to that mortar ammunition and small arms ammunition and um, remember a machine gun fires at 500 rounds a minute two minutes fire is a thousand rounds and that's a box that weighs 88 pounds as it were then we have all the uh, signals equipment the burying a deep uh, burying a signals cable in deep trenches all the palaver required yeah and it is absolutely colossal um at the same time as well um after derek geddes has settled in and created this thing called ghq transportation um there was a big push to remove motor transport from the system um because the amount of fuel it was using i mean the amount of motor transport was just increasing exponentially because it's so useful and everything was going to be done by uh, main gauge railway and light railway in the event uh, if you look at nine Corps, for example, it sent all its lorries back and then very rapidly got them forward again in order to provide everything. So things were a little bit wobbly simply because of the sheer scale of what's required. One of the problems with overwhelming artillery, and this is where it integrates with operational uh, methodology, thought and development. One of the big problems there is if you're going to assemble you know, 2,000 uh, you know, artillery pieces, you know, at least you know, one third to a half of which are heavy, then you're going to do two things. One, you're going to suck up an enormous amount of material that has applied, which means your logistical system will be working at full power. And secondly, you're going to annihilate everything in front of you because you're using annihilatory fire. That's what managers you can get forward. You can then consolidate. And so at machines, we begin to see pre-existing strains really becoming through, starting to come through. Um, one of the problems with machines is because it's so lauded, yeah, it's misunderstood. So, uh, I mean, even in logistical terms, for example, in um, you know hiding your roads and your railways out of enemy sight, they've got enormous advantages with Mount Kemmel, which is, you know, 120 odd meters high, about twice the height to the ridge and then you've also got hill 63 just to the south as well where you've got um uh, um high park corner there which is a major transport node and it's well out of view of the germans they can't it's very difficult to drop anything in there as it were so you've got a lot of advantages at machines and so in effect it's a bit of an easy run and and it's noticeable that once you get beyond the initial ridge line you know the forward defenses on the forward slope and then the defenses actually on the ridge line itself and you moving back towards the Oosterwehr line, which lies at the back, uh, and towards the back of the ridge there, that's when the bulk of casualties occur. Now, everybody thinks that the scenes was done in a day. It wasn't. It began on June the 7th. It wasn't finished until June the 14th. So we see problems beginning to occur. The problem there, you know, supplying it from the rear up to this, you know, this nominal army line, that's quite simple. You know, that's, that's not a problem. Hello, Kat. However, trying to deal with the front, that's very difficult. Next problem you've got, and this will be exposed very much during uh, uh, the Battle of Third Ypres proper, is engineering. We were woefully inadequate when it came to engineering, which meant we were woefully inadequate with roads, forward roads, forward uh, 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 light railway lines, so on and so forth. The engineers, I mean, we think about it, you know, you've got a division, that's what, 18,000 men at the time, at least nominally, and um, they have three field companies of Royal Engineers. When they went to war in 1914, they had two. So the expansion of engineers at this tactical level was the increase of one company. A company is at best about 170 men 
top. So you've then got the next problem of where is your labor coming from? And you think about what's required just to build, a, a, just for example, accommodation for one 10 man crew for, say, an 8 inch howitzer. You know, we're looking at over 300 tons of material that need to be humped up there and done. And that gets done by the men. And increasingly, the men themselves are unable to train because they're required for working party duty, working party duty. The conditions at the scenes were ideal. You had time to provide everything. You had time to build all your infrastructure. And the, the objective was very limited indeed. Now, and, you know, and so, like, you know, it, it looks like a great victory. However, there are problems underneath. It's a bit like the house that I bought. Looks great. Lovely old Victorian place. And so you start peeling back the wallpaper or you start looking at <laughs> looking at the roof. You know, it's all beginning to crumble underneath. So does the does the campaign really start to break down once they sort of launch launch third eeps proper from you know the end of july into august and through september yeah i mean yes yes it does um it's that's not just the fault of machines you've got longer term issues occurring as well you've got a structural problem with engineering you've got the fact they're trying to comb out the army service corps who are responsible for supply because of the number of they need more and more infantry you um also have this failure to concentrate on roads now to bloomer's credit he was very very keen on, on concentrating roads. You made it quite clear that um, if it's a choice between getting supplies up or getting casualties out, the casualties will have to wait. You know, um, he even uh, um, created a kind of emergency road mending squad. They were all in red lorries, 24 lorries, carrying, you know, macadam, soling, etc., etc., for repair of roads. They could get anywhere on the battlefield within 10 minutes and they could fill any shell hole in a road within 20 minutes uh, because keeping those roads open to keep transport flowing, to get everything, materials up there is everything. When it comes to Third Epa, though, you see an awful lot of wear of guns coming from uh, as far back as the Somme when they began to get some, you know, at least a reasonable amount of ammunition. And indeed, in May of 1917, uh, um, the Director of Ordnance of the War Office had said, you know, effectively, we're going to have to make a choice very soon. Either we can repair the guns we've got or we can build new guns, but we cannot do both. We are beginning to reach capacity. And it's interesting, in the first uh, part of the Messines uh, bombardment, yeah, there was a very strict daily quote on how many shells could be fired in order to maintain the life of the guns. It was kind of returned to 1915 in effect. Um, and it's noticeable especially in, in early June because even as the battle began on the 7th of June, they were beginning to move stuff from uh, Messines up towards Ypres itself, which is an unbelievable task when we consider the size of the area of what's got to be moved there. Um, even there, um, you're starting to see major problems occurring, like motor transports being handed over, and it's not been serviced, it's not been maintained. Now, the maintenance of these vehicles is very, very important, because if you don't maintain them, um, they're not like a modern vehicle. They won't just continue to run and run and run, and you just get a bleeping light that says service due, like on my car. No, these require an awful lot of maintenance every day. Just to give you an idea, is that, um, you know, in, in cold weather, you know, the entire radiator uh, and uh, and the cooling system has to be drained every single night and then be refilled in the morning. That's just one element. So machines put everything on 
under strain. The next problem you've got is that EPA is not machines. EPA sits in an amphitheater at very low level. You can supply it from the same railheads as before, uh, sorry, from the same main uh, uh, rail stations as before, value, and also um, you can supply it from Popperinger, but <coughs> it is far more open to German attack. And this is a much, much, much bigger operation. So there was some degradation of Britain's ability to fight after machines. It's not seriously enough to have dislocated the entire operation, but we can see the problems beginning to pile up. One of the big problems was light railway, which is meant to be the saviour, and indeed, it looks like the saviour. Most academics believe it's the saviour. If you start digging down to those people who actually had to run light railway, you find that actually it's not very efficient at all. Um, one of its problems, for example, uh, if you look at statistics of how much they managed to deliver, it looks fantastic. And so you realise that a good chunk of that is material that went out because the light railways were late. The working party that was there to unload it had waited and then gone back. And so it had gone back to its original uh, yard again then gone back out again and that load was counted three times so they actually delivered 10 tons but on the on paper they're delivering 30 tons and it's interesting to note that at Messines every single division and every single corps ended up taking between 50 and 75 percent of his ammunition by motor transport this in turn is destroying the road because you know you want to wreck a road yeah you can use a German 5.9 inch uh, gun uh, or you can use a three-ton Thornycroft lorry which is far more effective these roads they were designed really for you know very light capacity you know uh, you've got a, quite a number of you know metalled roads pave roads in uh, in the flanders area but they were never ever designed to you know deal with an army of such a huge size and you know everybody thinks the front is static once you move back behind those trenches it's movement all the time all the time everything's being moved so getting everything into position was tremendously difficult maintaining the road is tremendously difficult and commanders do not think about roadstone and they don't think about beach slab roads and they don't think about diversions until effectively the uh, the, uh, uh, um, the the crap hits the fan as it were it's only afterwards that they go so it was already beginning to look precarious uh, um, just before uh, uh, Goff's attack on the 31st so how does the the limitations in the logistical system that you've outlined influence the rest of the battle from you know August through to September and into November? Well, <clears throat> to begin with, I mean, like, Goff's attack on the 31st Pilkham Ridge and his drive northeast. Um, we can argue about that till the cows come home. Was he biting off too much? But his plan did have the merit of being logistically a lot lighter than the later assaults of Plumer. The reason being that he's, he's, he's doing bite and hold operations, just like Plumer is, but his bite is much bigger. Yeah. However, he runs out, you know, uh, 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 he outruns his supply line. So one of the problems you've got uh, um, from the 31st isn't just the weather, it's the outrunning of supply lines. It's noticeable that when you look towards the evening of the 31st and you look on the 1st and the 2nd of August, you have big supply problems building up. You have units at the front who simply don't have the grenades that they need or the rifle grenades or the machine guns, and they're starting to withdraw and pull back and the line stabilise. Uh, same thing happens again for the 18th. Remember also, there is such a thing as the Germans, and they have, you know, very much strengthened their lines, very, very much indeed. Um, people often say, why the large gap between Messines and uh, uh, the assault on the 31st of August, which allowed the Germans to build up their defensive uh, 
power in this area? The answer is you've got to move everything, Second Army to Fifth Army. You have to move everything from First and Third Army, Third Army uh, uh, through Second Army into Fifth Army. And then, of course, you've got the, the coastal assault to be undertaken by Fourth Army, Operation Hush. So effectively, it, it's the same as uh, those little puzzles you could get as a kid, a little square, where you slide around the numbers and you have to get the numbers in order because you've got so little movement, a colossal amount of material and a colossal number of men all being moved. You know, I'm surprised that there was any space at all. You know, I'm surprised it weren't toppling into the channel, as it were. Um, then you've got the weather. The weather does screw things up, yeah? However, the weather is, I mean, it was Napoleon who said of Flanders that it was the mud was the fifth element. And um, so uh, uh, it's an engineering problem. And this is where Britain, the BEF's failure to place engineering central to operations comes comes into a problem. In 1915, there was a memo sent out from GHQ that said, henceforth, operations are planned around artillery and engineering. The artillery is dealt with, the engineering never is. So this becomes a major problem when we move to Plumer's assaults from September the 20th onwards. Because they are so based on artillery and only a depth of assault about a mile, a mile and a bit, that means that the amount that you're firing, I mean, if we look to, um, you know, I think it's one of the Canadian assault um, in uh, uh, late October, I think they were putting down the, uh, 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 I think it was over 1.2 tons of high explosive per second, you know, on a very, very small front. So you are no longer, I mean, what's the word beyond annihilation? You have gone beyond annihilation to a, a, to, to a slough of despond, as it were, that you're creating in front of you. Rain or no rain. It's interesting to note that the railheads begin breaking down on the 19th of September, where we have good weather, you know, the problem is dust at this particular level. So plumers bite and hold, which is bite and hold with a vengeance, yeah, begins to create havoc itself because the whole thing is based upon what they call operational tempo you have to move those guns forward yeah as quickly as possible in order to keep the enemy off balance but the only way you can move those guns forward is by road or by light rail you have no road you have no light rail because you've just annihilated everything in front of you so unless you have that engineering capacity your bite and a series of bite and hold operations are going to fail irrespective of the weather and indeed we see that failure occur on the 9th of October when the 66th Division for the 9th Division went into their assault and the whole thing just collapsed. Um, you know, that was effectively, if you like, that was the rotten beam that finally broke, as it were. But it was easy to blame the 66th Division, it was central in, 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 for the assault of this, as an untried division. My grandfather was in the was in, uh, 66th Division. However, on the 12th, we see the same thing happen again with the experienced New Zealanders and Australians. Effectively, we have simply run out of logistical road. We cannot supply anything further forward. Had we had uh, a revolution in engineering support in 1915 and 1916, uh, the equivalent of the artillery or the machine guns, or even the creation of the tank corps, there would have been a very good chance that we could have maintained this operation. So what does the BEF take from the failure or maybe non-success of machines and 30? How do they reform on, and, and take forward these lessons, if any? Interestingly enough, they derive very few, if any, logistical uh, 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 or engineering lessons from the scenes of Third Epa. What they do, though, is they derive their logistical and engineering lessons from the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. 
The reason being is that they expect to move into mobile warfare in 1918. Initially, it was going to be the, the BEF and the French who will be pursuing this. Um, but latterly, it was the notion that we will sit tight while the Germans attack. But either way, they be, began to realise that mobile warfare was the future. Indeed, um, I think it sounds quite bizarre when you look at Third Epa and you look at the, 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 the distances involved, is that Third Epa represents open warfare. Now, open warfare is not mobile warfare, but it's no longer trench warfare. It's interesting to note that um, the demand for machine guns and rifle grenades increased dramatically during Third Epoch. The demand for grenades, simple grenades, went down because there's nothing to grenade really. So you've got the beginnings of open warfare and that's a precursor to mobile war. Since the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line in early spring of 1917 was the only experience the modern BEF had mobile warfare they took lessons from it and they began to do things like for example the notion of of increasing the motorization of the uh, BEF began to be argued for uh, um, they realized that uh, light railway simply could not be laid quickly despite the claims of everything to maintain and advance they realized that they were going to be extended from their railhead and therefore they're going to need motor transport and therefore roads there's a much greater focus on stone on roads and on flexibility of movement um so we have if you like by the uh, early 1918 they've created a standardized uh, um, uh, section of lorries to provide for supply I do keep going on about lorries, but they are vital to the system. Um, this is 16 lorries, one of which is kept as a spare, 15 which are used. And whether you're a supply column or a divisional ammunition column, whether you work core or whether you're working, you know, wherever, yeah, you just simply have a standard number of sections, all the same type of lorry, all with the same type of spare system. On top of that, you've got things like rapid bridging. It's interesting to note that when the Germans withdrew in 1917 to get the bridge across uh, Breen, uh, it took them something like in the region of three weeks to build bridges you know uh, um, strong enough to be able to carry the heaviest of uh, classes of traffic in 1918 um, in uh, August it took them um, only about three days to build those self-same bridges because they'd reorganized bridging they put a great deal of focus on it standardization of spans standardization of types of bridges you know that will take up and also devolvement of, of control command and control as well downwards because they also realize that top heavy control during mobile warfare will not work i mean goff to his credit you know he 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 said um, during uh, early 1917 as he was pursuing the germans um that it is clear that this system brought in by geddes will not work during mobile warfare so all of the key lessons are actually drawn from a completely forgotten part of the, uh, of the battle which most scholars look at in terms of its how it's up the assault for the Nivelle offensive and do not look at the fact that actually this is a critical period. It's our only experience of mobile warfare in pursuit of a retiring enemy. So in a way, um, the, the Third Epa, the scenes Third Epa was the last gap of the traditional operation first that began to develop in 1916. And it, it was a dead end, as it were. And it was the introduction of movement, which therefore allowed the BEF to really come into its own logistic i mean the uh, uh the proof of that can be seen um towards november the 11th if you look at the first week week and a half in november where uh, the British Army's uh, railheads, usable railheads, are 60 miles behind the front, which is a colossal amount. Given in uh, uh, before 1912, uh, you, you had horse travel 
transport the Gropper is seven miles in front of your uh, uh, um, railhead. In 1914, it was meant to be 37 miles, i.e. 30 miles of road transport, seven miles of horse. 1918, we're running at 60 miles. However, there are limits. We are really now pushed to its limits. Lurries are beginning to break down everywhere. There are shortages of everything. So interestingly enough, um, the armistice uh, itself came as an enormous relief to the, to the, to the British because it reached the point where we could not move any further forward. But that uh, period of early 1917 was critical. And in a sense, uh, uh, machines and third Ypres were just simply the last hurrah of the old way of doing things. And finally, Rob, where can people learn more about your research? Um, right, uh, I've um, I've done a couple of uh, um, tech uh, um, that, I, that I put out there, just chapters and you know, bits and bats. They're, they're very, um, they're, they're not particularly accessible. They're quite sort of high-end and technical. Uh, but I've been doing a lot of work with the WFA. And if people go on the WFA website, they can see not only this podcast, they can hear not only this podcast, but they can see a recent one I just did uh, uh, for the WFA, which was, uh, was called Lemons, Chewing Gum, um, Rivets and something or other. Army Service Corps uh, during the First World War. I think it's, uh, again, I fo- focused on Third Epoch because I find that quite fascinating, as it were. Uh, also, there's quite another um, the things on there. I mean, uh, um, I've forgotten, I've done it actually, but I, I strolled across on the, again, the WFA website, sticking Rob Thompson's in like that. I did a piece on the importance of the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line and how it affected battle in 1918. And um, I was meant to be writing the book. It is, you know, quite, I've, I've got quite a number of chapters done um, but unfortunately I was diagnosed with um, multiple myeloma uh, about 18 months ago and so that has kind of taken over my life and everything's had to go to the to, to, to the, the back of the queue um, I'm recovering now um, it, it is terminal we'll get in the end but the uh, prognosis certainly for the next five to ten years is very very good so I promise I will get that book out <laughs> it's so complex everything interacts with each other I mean the actual study of operations is a doddle compared with how they got a thing from point A to point Z via B to uh, Y. Rob, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.